Hey, Jeremy, do you remember being like 13 years old? Uh, not particularly, but I don't <laughs> fondly remember being a teenager, I think. Well, what kind of things did you worry about? You know, what were the things that was kind of like in your day to day when you were around that age, 13, 14, like just about to start high school? Yeah, I mean, I think my life was pretty standard in the sense of I had no idea who I was. And so I felt like <laughs> I was trying to figure out who were my friends, who did I want to be around. Mm -hmm. I was playing a ton of sports, so it was basically trying to use sports as an identity. Yeah. Um, uh, ultimately, I think I was very confused. Yeah, same. <laughs> I can relate to that 100%. And I think there's a lot of reasons that we felt that way back in 19 dickety seven or whenever we were growing up. But I think kids these days um, have, you know, a lot of the same internal struggles that, that we had, but they're growing up in a very different environment. And so you and I listened to a recent episode of the daily podcast. It, I think it was August 30th and talking about the adolescent mental health crisis. And I think it's a really great thing to talk about, especially since the the threats to kids these days are a little bit different than the threats or the, the perceived threats to us when we were growing up. And I think it's a great idea to talk about it. So I, I think that's what we should talk about today. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's great. I, I remember feeling very insecure mm -hmm. around those ages. I remember thinking uh, about a lot about what other people thought of me and what I was doing. And I didn't have the pressures of having like social media and things like that. Yeah. So I would love to hear kind of more about how crappy it is to be a teenager right now. Yeah, totally. Are the kids all right? We don't know. We're going to ask one of our best friends, everybody's favorite mental health specialist. So stay tuned. Let's talk to Rose, Rose is back. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, Jeremy, should we, should we bring on one of our favorite people of all time? Yes. Yes. Repeat guests. Yes. So uh, again, we were going to call the, the make this a series in perpetuity called Mental Health with Rose. <laughs> so let's reintroduce Rose Mativier. Um, you remember, remember her from such episodes as trauma processing and breathing exercises with Rose. <laughs> so Rose... Previously, previously on. Previously on, yeah. <laughs> Rose is amazing. So Rose is a licensed clinical professional counselor and the intake director at Midwest Counseling and Diagnostics in Chicago. She has extensive experience working with adolescents and adults, and she provides individual and group therapy related to a wide variety of issues, including addiction, eating disorders, trauma, self-injury, among many other things. Um, and we're so happy that she's on. So Rose, welcome back. Yay. I Yay. feel so validated to be like invited back into the club. Like we like like the you cult. asked for a second date. I'm so excited. Oh, yeah. Our first it date went so well. We like like you. Yay. Yeah, I'm personally really excited to talk about something that isn't my own trauma process. Oh so. right. Other people's yes, now. Right. All the, the younger all the kids. folks. Aww, so I still know. lots of lighthearted, really fun conversation, right? Yeah. Exactly. But hey, it's important stuff. It's this is this is. is heady shit, but it's important shit. And I think, um, you know, we, we get the opportunity to kind of be the adults in the room, <laughs> you know, uh, to an extent. And and, you know, and speaking as the adults, 
you know, kind of answering the question that we brought up, like, Rose, do you think the kids are all right? What's going on? Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think, like, A, are any of us all right, <laughs> number one. Yeah. <laughs> but number two, um, I, in doing a lot of reading about articles that have come out in the past couple of years, I was really struck by um, some of them that recognize that the generalization on either end of the extreme, that all the kids are doomed, and going through horrible things, mm-hmm. or kids are resilient and they'll get through it. Either end of the ex- of that spectrum is um, probably a really an ineffective place to be. I think kids are resilient and they're not impervious. Mm-hmm. Um, they are greater risk for anxiety and depression um, and trauma, especially with the extra stressors that have um, been laid on this generation um, on a lot of different levels. So I think they need attending to. I don't think they're doomed. I think kids are awesome and creative and figure stuff out um, but they do need guidance support resources and um, help along the way absolutely one thing that really stuck in my mind about that episode of the daily which i think was very well researched and and uh very well articulated was sort of this shift from when you know we were growing up or when older people were growing up that the, th- the thought of that the threats to young people were more external threats like drugs and teen pregnancy and, um, you know, accidents and things. Those are the things with like actual threats to young people's health. And now there's this shift to thinking that these threats are more internal, like anxiety and depression and self-harm and dissociative disorders. And I'm wondering, I think that when I heard that, I was like, I definitely agree with that assessment. That's That seems to make sense. But I'm wondering... On second pass and thinking about it, were it was it always the same threats to us? It's just now we have a, a bit of a better understanding of them and or we're talking about them more? Like, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts about this sort of shift of external threats to young people now going to sort of these internal threats to young people? Or do you think it's kind of all the same shit? Uh, infuriatingly, my therapy answer is like it's it's both. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also think that not only is it just saying that like the threats are external, but it's actually saying that like the behaviors that they exhibit when they are experiencing distress are externalizing behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. They're um, throwing a fit. They're getting into fights. They're not doing their homework. They're pretty clearly marked by drug use, by risk-taking behavior. Mm-hmm. That's like an externalizing behavior. And then an internalizing behavior is when you just kind of hurt on the inside and nobody knows it. So this is when you withdraw. This is isolation. This is perfectionism. This is self-criticism, depression, anxiety. So those things that aren't as obvious uh, to the outsider and things that um, unfortunately actually are sort of valued and praised and reinforced in our ever increasingly... um, moving toward excellence in all of our kids kind of society. So I think also the the behaviors have become a little bit more internal, but mm. I think we're also more aware of internalizing behaviors and to look out for those things. So I do think on some level, teenagehood has always been hard mm-hmm. and always been a time for mood changes, um, difficulty, um, behavioral issues, risk-taking But especially in the last 10 years, our capacity for awareness on what depression and anxiety is, the fact that it's no longer as stigmatized to seek treatment for, that we are talking about it, it's okay to not be okay, is on coffee mugs. (laughs) Kids are on TikTok with all the, you know, TikTok therapists um, kind of validating their experience. So I I do think on some 
on one end, I think more is legitimately happening in our world and more is expected of teenagers. And on the other end, I think um, it's always been a hard time and we are just becoming more aware and less stigmatizing of that, more able to diagnose, more able to seek treatment, more able to um, see it for what it is. Julie, I was looking at this list that you had there with the external internal, and I just, it's really interesting to visibly look at mm -hmm. it, right? Because the external things that you mentioned are, are there's a couple of things that stand out to me. One, they're incredibly tangible, mm -hmm. like they're, they're physical events. And so then I thought to myself, like, what's different about them now? And I'm looking and I'm thinking, well, there's been a lot of changes in policies towards these things. Like, like there's been a lot of efforts toward teen pregnancy. And, and we know our teen pregnancy rate is the lowest it's been in a long time. In addition with drugs and things like that, you know, marijuana legalization mm -hmm. and kind of like the demystifying of what drugs are has kind of made it less, you know, prone to have the drug incidents that we used to have. And not to say there are no drugs. It's just different than it was mm -hmm. before. Accidents, you know, like seatbelt usage and uh, curfews and things that have kind of been used to try to decrease on, on car accidents and then uh, safety around like pools and things mm -hmm. like that. All these things that kind of have been developed all things that would decrease these things. But then when you look at these internal factors, these things that you listed, like anxiety, depression, self-harm and, and such, those are certainly not tangible, nothing that you can really put policy towards, mm -hmm. nothing where you can kind of kind of like tangibly get rid of it. But also, I would imagine, as Rose mentioned, that those probably did exist pretty heavily back in those days, at least thinking about my own experience. But then also, again, it wasn't talked mm -hmm. about, right? So it wasn't a situation where you we addressed these situations. You weren't looking at it and saying, what's the teen pregnancy rate? And then also, can you tell me the anxiety rate? Like what's the stress level rate of our kids? And not, and so I think Rose's points are really interesting there because I think that we are seeing more of those and maybe part of that's because some of these other things aren't as prevalent. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, Rose, I mean, I think you were touching on that, that there is more awareness. So, you know, the concept of there being an adolescent mental health crisis that's happening now. What do you think some of the factors that are going into that are like in the last, you know, 10, 15 years? Why do we think this is happening now? All of the layers. I think, yes. again, talking about it because there's more awareness. Mm -hmm. um, I, as, as somebody who, uh, you know, I, I, I have my own caseload, but also B, handle intake. And so I get general inquiries. And I can tell you, especially since 2020, the the people calling for therapy is like quadruple fold. Yeah. Um, more people, again, over the last 10 years are just more aware of it, more willing to um, seek services. Quite honestly, since Obamacare, more people have had mental health coverage because mm. they passed a mental health parity act that actually like covered it for most plant. Like so there's a lot of, uh, policy things that just sort of made mental health more accessible and people more aware of it. Number one. Um, I think, you know, number two, then, uh, you know, just like in the eighties and nineties when, uh, ADHD was more of a diagnosis, guess what happens to the ADHD rates? They skyrocketed. Mm. It's not that everybody overnight just got ADHD, it's that now they had the ability to diagnose it. So as the rates of, of um, you know, this many kids, you know, are, are showing that they meet criteria for a disorder uh, in a psychological disorder, it's not necessarily that that many kids are um, in distress and weren't before, but we are just diagnosing it a little bit more. So I think statistically we have to kind of take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. But um, 
I think the daily podcast also pointed to potentially biological. Um, kids are going through puberty at an earlier age. Mm -hmm. um, what the impact that has since their brain is literally kind of even less developed. And, and a year in child development, even at age like 9, 10, 11, is, is just a massive amount of development that happens. So mm -hmm. going through puberty and dealing with the impacts of that socially, emotionally, hormonally at 12 versus 10 is a world of difference. Mm -hmm. So that may have a pact, an impact on um, kids and they're experiencing this sort of in an earlier age when they're less, even less equipped for it. Mm -hmm. um, systemically, um, this is where the, you know, showing me gesturing wildly <laughs> everywhere <laughs> at all things, uh, especially in the past few years. But I think, you know, Jeremy, you had mentioned uh, when we were teenagers, uh, we weren't necessarily worried about the next school shooter. This generation absolutely is. Mm -hmm. um, and the pandemic and the fear of uh, infection, of disease, of infecting other people, the uh, home, you know, being at home, being isolated, uh, having homeschooling or going, you know, doing uh, video schooling, all mm -hmm. of those things that sort of really changed the entire landscape of what it means to be a person, but certainly what it means to be a teenager that's going through a lot of developmental tasks that are really specifically associated with identity, community, belonging, uh, relationships, uh, individuation, value, like all of those things that just they didn't have access to for the last two and a half years, right? Like we're just now kind of creeping back into a sense of quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. So I think systemically, um, policy-wise, uh, socially, social media can't be overlooked mm -hmm. in terms of, I think the Daily also mentioned the overstimulation of information. There's been a lot of other articles that show uh, prior to having phones in our hand at all times, the amount of information, uh, you know, that we were getting constant bits of information that are flowing in from here's an email, here's an article, here's a headline, here's the alert, here's the weather mm -hmm. alert, here's the text constantly. And that has an impact on our brain function as well, especially a developing brain. I think that you can't also overlook the like button because mm -hmm. right. I just feel like that it really hits home at what's really confusing as a teenager, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're trying to figure out who you are and where you fit and, and, and like your self, your, you know, your id and your ego, mm -hmm. right? Your self identity to a certain extent. And then at this point now you're, what used to be trying to get validation from people and, and and finding your niche locally has now spread out to basically hoping that somebody will click a button for you. Mm -hmm. And a teenage brain really struggles to understand long term. And it, it is uh, a brain that is much more focused and driven by the amygdala, which is sort of the fear center of the brain mm -hmm. and the prefrontal cortex that sort of... Uh, helps us establish our, you know, executive functioning, pros and cons, bigger picture, longer term thinking that doesn't even fully form till we're about 25, right? So, um, like I was an idiot at 20 and 22, <laughs> even though you're like, I'm an adult, I'm in my 20s, like your brain isn't even fully formed yet. Mm -hmm. And so at, at an age where you don't understand, it gets better. And it's not always going to feel this way. And this is so minute in your life, you do, you literally don't have a brain that can understand that. And Back in the day, if there was a crowd of 10 kids that were like pointing and laughing at you, that was humiliating enough to just send you like, you know, reeling. Mm -hmm. But now with social media, a thousand people can point and laugh at you. Right. Right. And the comparison 
and the public nature of it and is it good enough and the constant like trying to keep up with others um it's it's just like exponential when the population you were dealing with was the 30 people in your classroom and now you're dealing with the 30 million other teenagers in this country much less the world so you're right i think the like button and the evaluation and the comparison is so hard yeah it's really hits home i feel like i'm 38 years old and i still feel like i'm not (laughs) i'm still thinking with my amygdala a lot and it's hard for me i mean i think you know, I had heard somewhere recently that, and it, it really struck home with me, that, like, your your current mood of how you're feeling right now about your personal well-being really very clearly colors your thoughts about how the rest of moving forward your life is going to be. So if you're in a really great positive place, then you're more likely to feel optimistic about how things are going to go. But it, uh, conversely, if you're feeling like you're in a kind of a overwhelmed, burnt-out, dark, shittier place... You're going to, you know, that's going to color your, your view of of the rest I mean, what feels like the rest of your life. And I'm still struggling with that as <laughs> what feels like being an old person now, <laughs> you know, like, so I can't even imagine. I can't right. even remember what it was like to be, have that turned up to 11, you know. Right. And you have the capacity person. for some perspective taking and that brain you know, just some capacity, like the tiniest, <laughs> but that 15, 16 year old brain um, mm-hmm. really legitimately does not have that and you're right like that uh it's called mood dependent or state dependent um functioning but when you're depressed you literally not just forward thinking you literally remember Mm -hmm. you're more likely to remember all the bad things you literally don't remember the good things it does seem like looking back on my life all of it was horrible and moving forward all of it's going to be horrible and all the stuff that's happening right now horrible 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 and when we are in a more positive state of mind, we're more capable of perspective taking and thinking, oh, that one thing was really cool. So it's not that it has to all be unicorns mm-hmm. and rainbows for us to be like contented. But um, the capacity to step back from that and take some perspective is just not something that teenagers are particularly good at. So they are so much more susceptible to sort of an increase in depression and anxiety because of that. And I'm like an, an adult empowered woman who has agency over my current state so like compared to a kid who has to be dependent on their parents or on some adult to help them get like if I have an issue I can get my ass to my therapist or I can call Rose or you know what I mean like I can I can I have a much easier time seeking out and looking for help than a 13 year old does a 13 year old you know may not a feel comfortable bringing these things up they may be scared of you know a million different things and they don't they just don't like they can't just get in their car and drive to a place to go get help they you know what i mean like right. so if they had the vocabulary for it right. to know what they were feeling and then they knew like what the solution might be and then to have the autonomy or agency to actually implement it and enact it um luckily states like illinois do have laws that if you're over the age of 12 you can consent to your own particular mental health for mm-hmm. uh, i think seven sessions before um, parents have to be, you know, notified. So there are some allowances for that, but they probably don't know that. That's mm-hmm. not like well, you know, known. And then right, like get a car, <laughs> get information. Yeah. But also even without like seeking services, just um, I hate school and I don't like the people that I go to school with. But I force to go there every day. Mm-hmm. Um, or I don't want to take this class. And and to some degree, it's it's developmentally. We want to be able to learn how to deal with distressing situations. We don't want to sort of say, oh, this class is uncomfortable, so I'm quitting, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to learn resiliency 
And if something is really that damaging, we also want to be able to make the choice to shift to something else or change something. And teenagers are rebellious for a reason. They're really experimenting with their own autonomy and their own identity, even the tiniest bit of things, because they, because they don't have that control in so many aspects of their life. Yeah. What roles are parents playing in this? I mean, I think parenting has always been a huge part of a child's development. Like, what have we seen from the parental aspect that either, either fuels the fire or is trying not to fuel the fire? I think it depends. <laughs> there. Um, I think one of one of the most heartening statistics that I've heard in, in work with especially with trauma and resiliency and kids and teenagers is that one of the main factors of resiliency and positive outcomes despite the negative things that happen in childhood is the existence of one consistent positive adult relationship. It could be a coach, it could be a teacher, it could be a parent, it could be an aunt, it could be an uncle. Um, but that it, it's not a ton is required um, but it is so that little that is required is so important and I think I give parents the benefit of the doubt that I think any parent wants the best for their kids but also then I'm gonna you know zoom out to the wider picture is that systemically when families need two or three jobs just to survive and make the ends meet like how can a parent be home for any of that to be able to know their kid in a lot of um, communities where excellency is kind of pushed as the norm and you, there's sort of this perfectionism that bleeds out into our kids and pushing them which implies to them even though you're not directly saying it but it implies to them that anything less than excellence is deficient and unacceptable um, and so I think on on both ends of the scale either you know the impacts of poverty marginalized populations racism all of these other things that impact a parent's ability to be present um, and then on the other end their ability to push too hard because of the factors of pressure of like they got to get into a good college they got to do all of these things to um, live this life in the most excellent way from a good place I want to set them up for success but that definition of success is actually the thing that is maybe more likely to burden them with depression and anxiety yeah I recently came across some articles uh, pointed to me through New York Times Parenting, but there was a, a book that's written by Jennifer Senior, and the book is called All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. And the basic concept um, that was, I mean, not the whole book, I haven't read it, but one of the things that was presented is that, you know, children these days have moved from being the employees of the relationship to the employers of the relationship with their parents. And I thought that was a really interesting, like, metaphor because the concept was is when we were younger a lot of times our relationship with our parents was hey i want to be able to do this i need to go here i want to do this extra school activity and they were like okay well pick what you can but like it's going to fit around my schedule mm -hmm. like the parent was saying like we'll fit it around my schedule but we'll prioritize and now i just feel like there's so much of like the okay I don't want to make my kid upset. I got to sign them up for this. I got to sign them up for that. If I don't get them into the camp they want that costs a lot of money, if I don't like get them on the team that's going to get them into college and get them a scholarship, if I don't do this, I'm a bad parent. Mm -hmm. And it's all about like catering to the kids. And, it, and if you think about the relationship you have with your boss versus the relationship you have if you're the boss, mm -hmm. it's like it's so interesting. And I, I just that concept and then what I was asking Rose and then what she just commented on, I think is playing a role in this in some form or fashion. I don't know if that sparks anything with you but i thought that was that that really rings true with me yeah i think it reminds me of the like back in the day like children should be seen and not heard <laughs> it's just like figure your shit out children and obviously like that didn't 
create a, a generation of bunch of people that are very emotionally intelligent. And so I, I do feel like it's, I struggle with not wanting to do the exact opposite of what seemed to not work well. And so usually the exact opposite is not the correct thing to do either, you know, and, and I think it's, you know, takes people like Rose who are, who are very well trained and help and, and see these complex interactions between kids and adults a lot, you know, uh, to, to shed some objectivity on it. Cause it, I, it seems like such a big, it's so big of an issue that it's like hard to wrap my head around. So Rose, uh, yeah. What are, what are your insights about sort of the interactions or interplay between, you know, kids and, and their parents or their caregivers? And I, it's, it's a dialectic, right? Like mm-hmm. children are better seen and not heard. And then the pendulum swings over to anything you want, dear darling. Mm-hmm. And the truth is sort of somewhere in the middle that they do need rules and they do need um, expectations and structure. They do need stress. Like that is a legitimate mm-hmm. uh, task of development. And, and so, but if the parent can't tolerate the distress of seeing their kid have mm-hmm. to tolerate distress, then they don't, they don't learn that. And, and that is something that sets them back. Um, for parents, I think they're really well intended. And I think a lot of the, most of the parents I've ever seen have just wanted really good things for their kids. They just didn't know how to get it, or they were so rigidly invested in things and needing to be a certain way or their kids being quote unquote happy. Mm. That if there's no tolerance for the fact that we have a full spectrum of a range of emotions and some days we're good and some days we're not okay, that actually um, causes problems. And so I think parents being able to deal with their own stuff, so that's not bleeding over, Mm -hmm. um, the impacts of society, the parents' capacity to be present and be around in the kid's life is one of the biggest primary issues. Resources, poverty, pandemic, health, all of those larger systemic issues and then a tendency toward um you know they have to be the best and do the best and get the best and um and then how that only deepens the chasm between the kids and families that can afford that and the kids and families that can't right um and i think it's you know it's kind of like that bell curve i've seen just a, a ton of trauma and negative impacts from poverty and then like it swings over and like wealth (laughs) also Mm -hmm. is its own Mm -hmm. brand i'm not like comparing that like um oh poor wealthy people but they're like that has its own brand of impact on Mm -hmm. kids for for a lot of different reasons so um you know kids need to learn to tolerate distress and do difficult things and have some grit and push through and they need support and they need guidance and they need people to help them yeah, I, that is that's a that's a great point to bring up of, well, I, about so that that bell curve and and really I think that the the big concern that I have is that there are so many people in our country that live in in poverty and and you know we talk about access a lot on this podcast and how you know the barriers to mental health services and the access that kids get. I mean, I think in this outline that you helped us make for today's episode was you just wrote the word terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, wanna... I would agree with that. And I re- would love to hear <laughs> just talk terrible, shit about it because period. I think just like ripping off the bandaid <laughs> and, and looking at for it as ugly and as bad as it is, it just, oh, it, it's ugly. It's ugly. But tell it's me ugly. about, tell me about, yeah, your this is the experience stuff that makes me want to like flip a fucking table and burn <laughs> it all down. Like, this yeah. Is, um, Chicago, the Tribune, and I think BZ have done stories about this over the years, and I'm just so surprised that it's never picked up a ton of traction, Um, and it's just kind of like people are like, that's 
uh, horrible and then nothing gets done about yeah. it. So but it, to the point, like the, the example that I have of how atrocious access to um, mental health treatment and especially specifically mental health treatment that at higher levels of care, like mm-hmm. intensive treatment, residential treatment, inpatient treatment for kids that are in need. Um, a lot of insurances don't cover it. Uh, or insurances require you to fail at a level of care before you can move up to a level of care. So instead of being a preventative model of medicine, it's very reactive, right? And so you have to have, um, you know, decompensation before we'll move you up when we could have just placed you there in the first place and actually given you the treatment that was appropriate. And there have been some situations where um, parents with insurance um, are really struggling and their child is not able to find uh, the resources or the treatment programs um, that will accept them. And what they have had to do in some instances is what's called a lockout, where the family, what the child will be psychiatrically hospitalized and the family just doesn't come and pick them up. Yeah. And that means that then the state, DCFS, takes over. They become a ward of the state. And then the state is able, because they're required to by law, get them covered and get them in treatment. But there are parents that legitimately had to give up custody of their children and be found negligent as parents to get their kids treatment. How fucked up is that? That's I'm viscerally ill listening to that. Yeah. I mean, what an abject failure. (laughs) Again, like Tribune and BZ have done really, really great reporting on it. Um, But it just, I mean, that's where people kind of put their other hands up and they're like, "Well, that's our system." And and meanwhile, what what options do these kids have? And that and this is for families that it's not like they're not resourced, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they still can't afford that treatment. Um, or get into these programs, even if they can't afford the treatment and the insurance covers it, the wait list for programs that take adolescents are like eight to 12 weeks long. So I think the Daily also talked about like the ER, and I think the mm-hmm. ER gets a bad rap because ERs aren't meant to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like the reason people are waiting and languishing in ERs isn't because they're not doing their jobs or they're not funded, but that's not their job. Yeah. Um, so their job is to secure safety. And if that person is saying, I'm not actively going to hard myself or somebody else, then the ER deflects them. Uh, yeah. But that's not treatment, right? And so getting them into treatment, which isn't always in a hospital, it could be just a more intensive level of care. It can be an outpatient therapist even. But those are um, difficult to uh, get set up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like I've, I've run into so many people looking for services that are looking for a total unicorn, mm-hmm. somebody who sees this age range, um, specializes in what I need to specialize them, uh, is in network and has immediate openings, yeah. right? Like that's, that's, uh, and, and sifting through all the bios online, sifting through the people that are just anonymous names on a list that your insurance gives you is just such a daunting task. Mm-hmm. There's so many barriers to even just getting set up with just run of the mill, uh, therapy services, much less if there's more intensive needs for treatment. And how about the other side too? Like, are we are we dealing with provider shortages? I would think we probably are to a certain extent. Definitely in some areas, like psychiatrists, for example. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's like none, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so there's definitely like a national psychiatry shortage. And then on top of that, psychiatrists that specialize in children and adolescents even more so, and then psychiatrists that accept your insurance, and then psychiatrists that have openings, right? So it's even more of a unicorn of a unicorn of a unicorn. Outpatient providers, there are fewer. <laughs> that um, like therapists, social workers, psychologists, there are fewer that specialize in children and adolescents than the adult population. So that lowers the amount of people that they have access to. So I think 
there is a shortage of that. And like I said, over the last uh, couple of years, there's just been um, a marked increase in the utilization of mental health services uh, that has also played a, fa- a part in people um, being able to have any openings. Mm-hmm. So that's also a big barrier. Um, a lot of schools have tried to be some, some front lines and fill in some gaps, but it's also not the school counselors job necessarily to provide long-term treatment. They're providing sort of short-term stop gaps and working with the family and helping get resources and connecting them with longer-term services. But if those longer-term services aren't there and aren't available, their hands are kind of tied. Um, a, lot, a lot of schools have tried to implement uh, mindfulness programs, more social-emotional learning, and I applaud all of those efforts, but not every school has the funding and resourcing for it. Mm-hmm. And if it's just psychoeducation, um, it's it's just simply not necessarily effective at all or as effective as it is when they can actually um, put resources in the relationships uh, and mentoring and um, kind of one-on-one or small group interactions with kids when they're talking about social emotional stuff. Yeah, especially since, I mean, and I'm sure this has been impacted greatly over the past couple of years, or at least for, you know, in most, most public schools, at least a year of being remote learning only like how do you how do you build connection when you're I mean it must be very very difficult to build connection when you can't actually physically be together and learn Mm -hmm. people's communication and learn nonverbal cues and learn I don't know just I I can't even imagine it to be honest with you it's hard enough you know we all talk about zoom fatigue in like the you know finite amount of meetings we have to do and imagine if that was your whole day every day for at least a year. Like I cannot imagine to, to just not have complete burnout with that. And then really just not retaining any of that really vital, um, opportunity for growth. Like, of course, of course we're in this mess, you know? Well, developmentally, uh, and again, like all of us, Mm -hmm. right. And, um, the teenage brain is more, um, doing and feeling right. Mm -hmm. They learn through experience. They learn through interaction. They kind of learn the hard way. Mm -hmm. Like that's developmentally baked in. I don't know where the line is until I've crossed it. Um, they experiment, they risk take is a natural part of their development. And the idea being that there's a family there, a community there that can be a safety net to Mm -hmm. help you screw up. So, but here's your net, right? right. Instead of screwing up when you're 30 and you don't have that net Mm -hmm. screw up when you're 15 and then have a funny story to tell, you know, at Thanksgiving 20 years from now. (laughs) So, um, the, it's, it's a, it's a doing and feeling brain. So if all you're doing is zoom Mm -hmm. and you're just talking, right, this is why kids are not, um, necessarily receptive to lecturing. Like Mm -hmm. that doesn't like, it's like the adults in Charlie Brown. Like it's not, Computing because that's talking to the prefrontal cortex, which isn't actually fully developed. And so um, if we're feeling, if we're doing, if we're experientially learning, but all I have access to is eight hours of a Zoom video all day, every day, like mm-hmm. that, there's so much like that's had impacts on learning, that's had impacts on social emotional, that's had impacts on relationships and development. And certainly the kids who are in need, special education kids, kids who needed OT, who needed mental health, mm-hmm. who needed speech therapy, like a lot of them fell far behind or fell through cracks because there wasn't um, the ability to have the experiential and the relationship and the doing um, in that time. And I think you so, talked yeah, about a lot too, of kids fell back. Yeah. Well, and also I think you touched on it or, you know, we touched on in the outline of what about these kids who don't have a good home environment? And now they're 
forced to be at home in this in a, in a place that oh, might yeah. be abusive or Unfortunately, neglectful. Unfortunately, rates of, ne- of domestic violence skyrocketed. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic. So, it kind of sounds like what we're dealing with is things that may have already been there, but they're significantly amplified at this point, like turned mm-hmm. up louder. Is that a accurate way? Yeah, of saying it's always some been a precarious th- uh, stage of our development. It's always been a moody, risk-taking <laughs> stage of our development. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff legitimately happening, you know, in today's world, stressors that are happening systemically um, and, and locally that, that haven't necessarily existed before on top of the layer that um, our connectedness, the, the relational connectedness, our, our brains literally develop because of relationships and interconnection. Um, our interactions with each other is what helps us learn. This is why preschoolers and kindergartners, it's not about like teaching them the colors they learn through play and interaction. Mm -hmm. That's how those neurons grow and form. Um, And that's been taken away from all of us for, you know, a while. And, and it, and it needed to be right. I don't, I, I think that we needed to kind of pull back, but especially for developing brains that had, um, a pretty huge uh, and disproportionate impact, I think. And I think it kind of ties in a little bit, in my opinion, to just sort of the the degree of social life being not in the real world, you know, it, to being in, into an online world. And I and I think that really ties into sort of dissociation and dissociative disorders to a degree of like this just doesn't feel real, like what I'm experiencing and like the concept of what is reality can maybe feel than when we were growing up because the internet didn't really exist or it started to exist when we started to kind of come online. <laughs> the The internet was coming online. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it opens things up to more just like verbal abuse and, and bullying and just sort of like ostracizing people because yeah. you can and it's behind this, this comfortable layer of uh, you're not really face-to-face anybody. Here's, here's where date, I think you know? I have a little bit of hope (laughs) and that social media isn't the the total villain I think it can be it opens up access to a lot of really negative things Mm -hmm. but conversely it opens up a lot of access to really really positive Mm -hmm. things Um, and for as much damage as the internet can do um, it's been an amazing way to normalize Mm -hmm. to find your people um, to connect to share information to create opportunities for activism and um, community as long as people are sort of meeting offline right? yeah. somehow somewhere and I think that um, kids traditionally uh, you know if they're if they're not sneaking around on the internet like we were sneaking around somewhere else in the <laughs> 80s and 90s you know what I mean like mm-hmm. it's, so it's not like sneaking around got invented because of the internet yeah um, getting bad if, information you know, from someone's right, older and if brother they, if we put <laughs> yeah. in like the we put in the GPS locator on their phone. Like it's not, you know, yeah. they'll find a way to crack it. Just sure. like we found a way to sneak out the, the windows mm-hmm. and like not leave a trail. So Good point. <laughs> to, to Good some point. degree, I think that behavior is always going to happen. And sure. there's always going to be some level of risk and there's always going to be some bullying. Mm-hmm. And so this is where it really comes into play with the parents being able to have those conversations about, you know, what, uh, what is that? What is your social media use? What are the pros of it? What are the cons of it? So the, you know, if the parent just comes in and says, social media is bad, don't use it. They're going to use the hell out of it. If you can come in and say, this is, you know, a blessing and a curse. How are you going to use it? When are you going to know that it's not, um, serving a good function in your life? How are you going to know that you need to break that parents are also maybe modeling that relationship with social media Mm -hmm. themselves and, 
um, the internet, but I do think that it can be a force for good mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, um, and a lot of kids these days, uh, don't, it, it seems like they've moved to things like be real, for example. Um, you know, they're not on Facebook. That's mm-hmm. where all us boomers and Xers <laughs> and Xennials and millennials are <laughs> kind of ranting about stuff. Um, but they've moved on to like, you know, the Snapchats and mm-hmm. the, and more of the Twitter and more of like be real where it's these like moments, they're not having these huge long conversations mm-hmm. and it's these like messages back and forth that can definitely be used for like alienation and bullying, but can also be used to like maintain a lot of connection without yeah. kind of engaging in some of the problematic stuff. So, you know, I think there's just as much disinformation, misinformation, out there as much as there is like finding access to resources and normalizing things and really learning. And so the parent is working with the kid um, to utilize social media and that massive amount of information out there and keeping an open dialogue with them about how they use it and what's effective and ineffective. But same conversation we're having about sex Mm -hmm. and drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And alcohol, those are things that are going to happen. And how do you know you're comfortable with it? How do you know to back away? How do you know you need help? What are your levels of um, comfort with anything? What do you do if your friends are having difficulty? So I think across the board, uh, just having those conversations, knowing your kid, knowing their baselines, knowing if there's been a sudden change in behavior or mood, um, if and 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 that causes dysfunction. Because that's another thing I guess I wanted to add is yeah. that as parents, we're constantly is this normal? Is this okay? My kid is not talking to me. Right. Right. And they're, they're 14. They're not supposed to. So we don't want to over pathologize what's probably developmentally appropriate, but we don't also want to miss the warning signs. And that's a really tough balance to have. But, um, you know, psychological disorders, um, as kind of defined in the DSM are, are fundamentally diagnosed. If, if we opened up the DSM, all of us here would have like 15 disorders, right? (laughs) If it weren't for the fact that one of the main fundamental criteria is that it causes dysfunction Mm -hmm. in your life, impairment in your functioning in your life. It's not pathological to be sad. It is not pathological to be a sullen 15 year old. It's not pathological to be anxious. We all experience those things all the time. That's a part of the human experience. We're not trying to pathologize the human experience. Mm -hmm. It's a problem though, if I'm so sad that I can't get out of bed for two weeks and I'm not making it to school. It's a problem if I'm so anxious that I can't actually take the test and I'm failing out of my class, right? Mm -hmm. It's a problem if I'm so affected by the opinions of my classmates that I'm not eating or nourishing myself enough or um, can't sleep, right? Like that's where it becomes a problem. There's an impairment in functioning. Yeah. That's a, that was really good. Yeah, that's a huge, that's a great distinction to make because I, I, I can't, I mean, I don't have children, uh, but I can imagine, you know, I even think about those ways of myself. It's like, is this going to turn into something bad? You know, like it's, it's mm-hmm. always you, that, that little spark of worry that comes with any little symptom, you know, and, uh, and you're right. Like, it's okay. You know, things, things can ebb and flow and it's, that's part of the human experience. And it's, sometimes it's just nice to hear that from an expert, Rose. So thank you. And that's where I get on my soapbox about like social emotional learning in schools from a very young age, which we don't have, which should be across the board everywhere because as adults, we don't realize that like, oh, feelings are okay and they serve a purpose and Mm -hmm. I'm like supposed to feel this and this is not like dysfunctional. Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) But like, so like how's a 10 year old supposed to know that? How's a 15 year old supposed to know that? Um, And like I said, there are a lot of programs that are rolling out more awareness of emotions and coping mechanisms, emotion regulation, even just the concepts in and of themselves. 
Um, and, and I hope that that continues in, in schools and with kids because it really is such a huge important part of, of learning to live our lives mm-hmm. is not just understanding the plant, you know, growth cycle or, <laughs> um, you know, algebra, but also like, how do you, how do you work? How does yeah. your body and brain work? How do you tend to think about things? What do you do if you feel things like mm-hmm. that's some pretty fundamental education? That's, that's hard to believe has been so lacking when it's so fundamental. And maybe they'll let us audit those classes. too. <laughs> yeah, I can think- I go? Can I go to my kindergartner does have socio emotional uh, learning as part of the curriculum. And I just like, can I come for those 15 mm-hmm. minutes? Because I, I can we sit in the back? Can I look like Billy Madison and just sit in there? And, <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. I want to learn with your this. notepad, your like legal notepad. Yes, yes. It's cool to pee your pants. Can, can you teach me feelings? Um, <laughs> right. We need to talk feelings. We yeah. don't know what the feelings are. Let's just watch uh, Inside Out. My over and over movie. and over again. Oh, that My movie favorite. is so it's, good. And I just love that kids' entertainment these days does make, you know, doesn't, or shows us that what feelings it, can be normal. So here's and, another thing where, like, the kids are all right. Yeah. You know, again, we're, like, worrying <laughs> a lot about the kids. We're yeah. worried. But, again, like, they, kids are going to kid. They're going to sneak. Mm-hmm. They're going to risk take. They're going <laughs> to rebel. They're going to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And we can tolerate some level of that and recognize where it's becoming a problem and pathological and seek help and mm-hmm. advocate for help and advocate for sort of early intervention and education in prevention as opposed to just dealing with things when they're a problem, all of that. Um but one of the things that I was so struck by is that when I saw Inside Out, I mean, I was like hysterical crying oh from like God. second one. I was just like, Felix, this is so amazing. Ugh. And I was just so struck that like this movie was being made, mm-hmm. right? And I was just so beyond moved that like people were going to see this. This is a thing. This like, and it was amazing. All, all of the praise in the world. So, so groundbreaking for me, for us, for I think this generation, because that's not <laughs> what we were taught. That's no, not, we didn't right. know about feelings. And um, one of my nieces saw it and I was just like, and she was younger at the time. She was maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 or something. And uh, I was like, oh, wasn't that, wasn't that amazing? Wasn't that the most amazing movie you ever saw? Can you believe it? Feelings and we're allowed to have them and they're like a thing. And she was just like, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, it was a good movie. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. It was a good movie. Do you, yeah. what do you think they're thinking out? like, are the adults okay? Yeah. The, adults she was like, okay? uh, did you not know feelings are a thing? <laughs> Like, yeah, but I just have the vision now of like the little person in that person's head being like, "Oh, she's so out of touch." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was totally, I was totally out of touch. But she, for her, like feelings had just been talked about yeah. so much. Like That's that great. was not a surprise to mm-hmm. her, right? Like so, kids do. There is so much more awareness about mental health, about mm-hmm. the fact that we have feelings. We need to like suss that up and like. What, so then, what do you do with them? Um, but I, I do. I, I, I was struck by that divide in terms of. Our, our awareness that feelings are even a thing <laughs> from our generation to, you know, the next ones coming up. And I am heartened um, by that awareness and sort of that commonplace every day, like, yeah, feelings are a thing. It It's a hard thing to learn. Mm-hmm. It really is. Because I, I think a lot of us were raised without that concept. I think we understood that emotions and feelings are exist, but I don't think we or understood. Only the good ones can... are acceptable. That's a good point. And then also, I think that that emotions can have and feelings can have somatic symptoms. Absolutely. Emotions are totally physiological. They're feelings. Yeah. Right. And so I think that that's hard to wrap your I I still struggle to this day with that concept Mm -hmm. because it creates an pain or soreness or or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and it that concept isn't to, to understand that that's not abnormal. 
Right. And being able to just be aware of the fact that like, okay, so quick, where does two plus two live in your body? In my butt. Where does embarrassment (laughs) live in your body? Oh, geez. Everywhere. Face. You just felt it, right? Like you had, there's, oh, there it is. Yeah. Right there. Like it's a physical. That one's also in your butt? (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I don't know about that. Um, (laughs) Rose is a great point. No, but you're right. We'll talk after this. Yes. Um, But yeah, the, the. It, it is, and, and this is also something that I think is becoming, we're becoming more aware of even just in the field of psychology. Yeah. Over the last 10 years, is just sort of that connection between the mind and the body they don't accept, exist separately, right? And so it is a physiological experience. There's a physiological urge with our emotions, mm-hmm. right? Like anger has tension and wants to like hold up anxiety, you know, once there's that fight or flight. So we have like a very body-based reaction to these things. And so again, if we don't know that, when you're a kid mm-hmm. and you're just feeling stuff in your body mm-hmm. and you can't control it, mm-hmm. that's scary. It's weird. You suppress it. You stuff it down. You think you're bad for it. And just the the importance of some education around that is can't be overstressed. Rose, you mentioned, and it's, it's you know, so this show is your doctor friends. So, uh, you know, Jeremy and I are physicians. We're both family medicine physicians in our training. And there was a big part of the daily that was opening up, basically talking to a pediatrician and how when she started off practice, it was urgent care. It was like broken bones and colds and um, vaccinations to, you know, like so then some preventive care and stuff, too. But like then over, you know, she had mentioned over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years it had turned into mental health management. And I will tell you, I mean, I don't know if you'll agree with me, Jeremy, but I feel like my psychologics and my my psychiatry training was okay i would say in medical school because it was like here's medicines and what they do but like i i kind of knew in the back of my head that most of this stuff i wouldn't have to retain because i wasn't gonna go directly into that field but like i feel like my training for like psychology you know and um and not just like medicine management was not not good I don't know how if you feel the same way, Jeremy. Yeah, but I mean, our medical schools weren't de- designed to attack these problems. Yeah. I mean, not to say that they shouldn't be. I'm just saying that when we went to medical school, it was based on a foundation of education that was based on the medical problems from before. Right. So, like, evolution of medical education should it be occurring the same way education, as Rose mentioned, with so, you know, like feelings being a part of kindergarten mm-hmm. and talking about those in your body, that should also be happening in medical school, the same way that we are also starting to do exercises, prescriptions in medical right. school and actually talking about those like nutritional things in yep. medical school instead of just drugs and stuff like that. So like, I, I think that education actually is improving. And now I totally agree with you. I think we were just not ready for yeah. this, mm-hmm. like many things that we were not ready for, Agreed. Um, you know, that we are a reactionary society. It's like something happens, we can see it and feel it with our own two eyes and two hands and it's like okay well now we need to do something and you're like okay but we've been trying to do something for a long time and like you know like but now i can see it it's like armageddon right instantly can tell it's tell it's too late yeah agreed and it's hard too because i think the the doctors are such a front line especially pediatricians Mm -hmm. and so their ability to just kind of know that something's up or sort of be able to connect with resources is such a huge part of it um but 
it they can't be necessary like it's a, it's a whole different animal right mm-hmm. because there's also a lot of um criticisms in psychology of using the medical model for something like this because a broken bone is a broken bone and it looks like a broken bone and here's what the broken bone does and here's how you treat a broken bone but depression doesn't always look like depression yeah. in this person or that person and how you treat the depression and the reason for the depression and the prognosis is completely different and so um, for a pediatrician to know like, oh, this looks like depression or this looks like ADHD or this looks like anxiety or this looks like trauma when all of those have the exact same symptomology is a really difficult thing to do. But being able to know and recognize something's off here mm-hmm. and then being able to like ask about it, offer resources and get them connected um, is is I think where those you know medical schools are more kind of offering trainings to be able to see yeah. that coming and what to do if that happens in your office. Um, where to hopefully send them and then hopefully and I've seen a lot of hospitals partnering more with um, more of a holistic sort of Mm -hmm. mental health or behavioral health programs within the hospital that uh, collaborate as as part of that that team for the family so I, I, I think that it's kind of moving in that more holistic direction. It's a good point, too, because I remember when I was in family medicine clinic uh, in an underserved population, mm-hmm. finding a resource to have kids go do this was damn near impossible. Yeah. Just couldn't find it. And so I think if more resources available, that'd be helpful. And the pediatrician does so many checkups, they can tell sometimes when things are off because they've seen the person so many times and they have that 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 trust and that that um, relationship with them that, that is so important for that. And then I think it, it puts just sort of systemically so many of us in a position of burnout because you're dealing with things that you don't have any control over. And so doctors are kind of fighting this uphill battle um, for the health of their patients when, um, you know, they don't have access to the right nutrition, to the right mental health resources, Mm -hmm. to um, be able to get coverage for their medication, to all the things that can be wrong with it, just like teachers are put in a position to be um, the parenting resource, to be the case managers to be, um, you know, the screeners and the mental health when that's not like actually their job. And when that's all that you have, like that's what teachers step up and do. And then they get burnt out and same with doctors, same with mental health professionals and same with so many people in the community that are trying to put band-aids on, um, ax wounds and, uh, that's tough. And so I I wish if I was to get on my soapbox, (laughs) get on it, be more preventative, um, but that's not necessarily um, profitable. Yeah. So I think we should wrap this up. This is a very, very pithy episode. Uh, Rose, let, let us know where we could find, you know, other resources where our listeners can look for, you know, um, ways to learn about this even more. Um, yeah, I think just nationally, NAMI is usually a really good um, website with uh, a lot of information, and then they kind of take you down to your local um, places, just NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. Um, what does N-A-M-I a, stand for? National Alliance for Mental Illness, and uh, they have just a ton of resources and um, local chapters and a lot of like groups and things like that, so they're just a good kind of starting point. Um, and then uh, NAMI Chicago is just n-a-m-i-chicago.org, mm-hmm. uh, the information just sort of closer to home. There's a resource that WBEZ um, kind of listed, a bunch of specific to teens mm-hmm. um, resources, Chicago Mental Health Resources for Kids, um, and that's the title of the, the article that they did, or the story that they did. So WBEZ has a good um, page on that that I've provided a link to. And then there were a couple... Um, 
articles uh, about this that I thought were really uh, well done and, and kind of hitting on the points that we made here. One was um, Harvard Magazine, uh, an article called No Going Back to Normal, mm. and another one from Nature called Tackling the Mental Health Crisis in Young People. So you could Google those, but those are really, I think, helpful articles if there's parents out there especially that are wanting more information or because there's just so much that we've talked about today, wanting to sort of make <laughs> sense of all of that in a far more organized kind of way um, than what I can I just start spewing stuff and then it's not really organized. But those articles were nicely edited and, and <laughs> maybe present the information uh, well uh, there too. So I would say check those out. We like the way you spew, Rose. I love spewing. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to do something special this week. We're going to kind of have a, 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 a binge of episodes. So just look for a couple <laughs> more uh, episodes after this because this is the uh, topic that you can't really wrap up. It's just one that's going to be yeah. in just nonstop. So we want to make sure we put out some... We're always going to worry about the kids forever and ever. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we're going to put out some tangible stuff. So look for that. And uh, frankly, I think what I've learned uh, today is that the kids are resilient, mm -hmm. but the kids need our help. Mm -hmm. So let's pay attention to mental health and ask our doctor friends. Well said. Hear, hear. Yeah. <laughs> The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Mm -hmm.